Tim, episode 32, Stats Don't Matter, it's here. We're going to recap the Masters. That was a nice little fun weekend in golf there. We're going to talk a little Formula One, and we're going to expound upon a momentous week for Major League Baseball. In our cups this week, it's a pair of IPAs from Westbrook, Maine. Yes. Uh, you all know, I've been saying it at you for a while, you're going to find the Stats Don't Matter podcast wherever you get your podcasts. It's on Stitcher, Apple, Google, Spotify. Go find it out there. Tell your friends about it. Tell everyone that you're listening to it. Get at, get the likes, the, the subscribe, the share out there. And then while you're at it, just follow us on social media too. At Stats Podcast on Twitter and at Stats Don't Matter on Instagram. Tim, it's, it's very rare that uh, we both want to have the same, the same style of beer. And then it's even rarer that we have the the same style of beer from the same brewer. So, uh, I, I mean, I'm, I've been geeking out. This is this is back-to-back episodes of IPA 2 first, so I'm all about it. Uh, but this week, we got some heavy hitters from Mass Landing up in Westbrook, Maine. Uh, all right, Sam. Mine is going to be a little different than most of our normal beer conversations. Um, this is a beer from Mass Landing, but more importantly, this is a beer that was done in collaboration with both the family of uh, Corey and the boys at Vacation Land to honor Corey. Um, those of you who may not have heard, uh, Corey's a colleague of the guys at Vacation Land who passed away not too long ago. Um, I know it broke those guys up quite a bit, uh, but he's got a family to support. Those guys are trying to help support uh Corey and his family. So they got together with the guys at Mass Landing, brewed up this beer called Biff and Bev. It's a double dry hopped IPA. Uh, the nice part about this is that every penny that this beer raises goes directly to that family. Um, but it's a little bit of a touching tribute. If you look at the can, it's got a picture of him and his wife on the can. But on the side of the can, it has this really touching write up uh, that the boys did for him. Um, got me a little choked up the first time I read it. So I'm not going to read it to you guys because I want you to see it on your own for the first time and, and sort of get the full weight of what it is that you're holding in your hand. Um, I'm a big fan of Mass Landing. I think they do a lot of great work. We've already talked about Gunner's Daughter a couple episodes back. Dan's about to dive in one here. Um, it doesn't feel right to r- give this beer like a rating because there's a little bit more meaning to it than just where I think it falls on the the taste scale, but it is your normal double dry hopped IPA. Um, it looks, feels very similar to some of the higher end ones that you have, and it tastes phenomenal. It is a very, very, very good beer. So if you guys see it called Biff and Bev, I need you to go out, grab it. Uh, I would put this up there with any of the other IPAs we've had on the show so far. Um, you know, I hope. Potentially, it turns into some variation of like a, a long-running beer because it it is phenomenal. It's very, very good. But uh, more importantly, it goes to support the guys at Vacation Land, um, just emotionally and in, in, in their ability to support the family. But you now these things are tough. Lots of unexpected finances come up into play when you know your income is literally split in half forever. So go out, do your part. Pick up a couple of these, pick up a couple for your friends, tell your friends to pick them up. They came out uh, this week. They should hit, I think, distribution in the area. I'm sure they still have some at the brewery if you can, but uh, it's a phenomenal beer. Shout out to the boys at Vacation Land. Shout out to the guys at Mass Landing. Shout out to Tyler Drum for helping 
get this down to me down here in Connecticut. So thanks, boys, and uh, cheers to all you guys. Cheers, indeed. Cheers, indeed. So I, I see your mass landing, and I'm going to raise you a mass landing collaboration because that's, that's the spirit of this week, right? You got all these collaboration beers. Uh, mass landing and tripping animals, and it's called Larger Than Life. It's a triple dry hopped uh, IPA. So you have the double, I got the triple dry hop. Let's get a quadruple dry hop. Let's get a hundred time dry hop. It's totally not economically feasible to continue to dry hop beers at this rate, but Hey, if it works, it works. Um, 7.4%. And as you can see, well, you can't see, but on the can here, this pixelated uh, background looks very similar to one of those video games that you might've seen on the Famicom or the super Nintendo in which a plumber, attempts to save his girlfriend from, you know, I, I guess like a dinosaur or a dragon or something. One of those video games. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe if you've ever played it, you, you know what I'm talking about. I don't know what I'm talking about there. Uh, Your beer is not in this castle. Yeah, no, it's sure, sure not. I always like hearing that, that big crack, even though I have like a keg now and like you know, pouring a keg is a nice sound, just cracking a can. There's just something to it. Tripping Animals is one I've had before. They make a lot of very unique beers. Um, they make a lot of like, tart, sour, sort of off-the-wall style beers. They're, I think they're down in Florida, right? Yeah, and they're, all of their cans, are, for the most part, have pictures of animals that look like they're, well, you know, yeah, under the influence yeah. of something. Uh, so it's kind of funny, yeah, but... Uh, yeah, like the on the on the side of this can here, there is a what I would deem to be a a bear, like a koala bear, and his eyes are definitely a little hang a little low. Um, but yeah. you know, again, I got I get a little bit of the citrus rind right at the top, but super aromatic, nice body to it. I've never really had a bad beer from Mass Landing, anyways. So you know, it wouldn't it wouldn't have started today, um, but this is this is pretty good. <laughs> I, I kind of, I, I started out in my IPA fandom as like a, a West Coast IPA fan, right? That's kind of how I, I grew up on drinking beers, like, you know, in my craft beer history, right? Like preferred more of the see-through, super piney and resident-y sort of beers, like, you know, along the lines of um, like Sierra Nevada and uh, Russian Rivers, like Piney the Elder. And then, of course, you know, you, we lived in Portland, Maine, which quickly became a a New England IPA hotspot. So it's like, you can only fight it for so long before you you go along with the train and you're like, oh, this actually isn't that bad. So, you know, now I'll, I'll go back and forth. I, I'll still appreciate a West Coast IPA for what it is, um, but there's a lot of bad ways to make a New England IPA. So when someone does it right, you just, you kind of stick with them until they go wrong, which is not usually very often. So very good here. I would, uh, I would give this, I give us a four point. I got four point one five. It's good. It's, it's it's nice. It's drinkable. There's there's enough flavor and aroma in it. It just kind of stops like after after like it sits on your palate for a second. The, the flavor just kind of drops off there a little bit. So I I think I would have wanted a little more, but uh, this is pretty good. I I definitely would recommend if you see it to to go purchase it. Collaboration beers they're you know they're limited anyways and. I think that the idea behind collab beers is pretty neat because you get these two breweries that obviously like yeah. they're both known for like what they do. And it's like, it's sort of a, a way to sort of 
like put your egos aside. You're like, all right, we're going to come together. We're going to learn stuff from you. You're going to learn stuff from us. We're going to make a beer. If it's a collaboration beer, like uh Biv and Bev, then, you know, good benefits. Right. So it's always a really good thing. I, I'm a little, I'm not going to, I'm not going to call anyone out, but I'm a little suspicious of breweries that like avoid collaborations. Like what, what's going on behind the curtain there? You know what I mean? You just, yeah. you just don't feel like doing one or maybe you don't think that you're, your stuff's up to snuff. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. All right. 415. And mine. No rating this time. Um, I feel like I wouldn't do it justice. So I'm just going to go out and give you my recommendation to go out, find this beer, drink this beer. I don't care if you buy this beer and then give it away or pour it down the drain. I don't give a shit. Go out and buy this beer. Yeah, it's for a good cause. If you don't, if you don't drink yes, IPAs, uh, I still want you to go out and buy this beer and give it to someone who does drink IPAs or whatever you got to do with it. Go get some. Because they'd, they'd appreciate it. Yeah. And we would too. Yeah. All right. I'm just telling you, now that we put uh, what's in my cup in the beginning, we may never go back. Nah, I don't, I don't see why we would. I think it sets a good pace. I do, sure right? does. I think I think it's like a uh, two old guys sitting on their porch in some rockers, yeah. drinking craft beers. Makes I remember bit, back in my day. Makes it a little <laughs> bit more relatable when you're like, ah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're just having a beer, chatting about sports. It's fine. Yeah, that is. And speaking of sports, Tim, I I know you might not be the uh, the big motorsports aficionado, right? I mean, I obviously just learned a lot about NASCAR here recently, but you know, I, a few episodes back, I talked about the Formula One Drive to Survive series on Netflix, and if you haven't checked it out, you got to. Um, it, it really kind of goes like behind the scenes at a lot of these different teams who participate in Formula One racing, which is on the international stage very big. Uh, there is a dwindling participation in Formula One here in the United States. But it's nothing like what you see um, overseas in, in Europe and Africa and Italy, um, Russia. It, there is just so much about that world that is just fascinating. Um, and, and that's what makes this most recent story, I, I think, worth talking about here. So Lewis Hamilton, uh, Formula One driver, he tied Michael Schumacher, who is arguably one of the greatest race car drivers of all time. Uh, he tied him with seven Formula One races. You, you know, Grand Ch sorry, seven Formula One world championships um and that is a mark that i think a lot of people didn't think would ever be equal nor beat and hamilton's at a point in his career where i mean theoretically he could continue to go on and win some more so of course you know we always love talking about goats on the show who's the goat there seems to be this rumbling online uh, and i don't know if that's indicative of just 2020 as a whole or maybe how polarized we are as as a nation or a world um but there's a lot of people who believe that Lewis Hamilton isn't the GOAT. Um, and, and there's a few counter arguments that you've probably heard while speaking with any casual uh, Formula One fan or even some of those diehards. And I think some of these things have to be examined just, just a little bit more in depth because it's, I think it's a bit disingenuous that folks are saying, well, he's not really the GOAT. And I just don't understand how they can, they can say that. If you take a look at where Formula One came from, um, the cars have have obviously gotten way better uh, with performance and in, in, in the engines and everything. And then you have the uh, constructors championships and, and each team, you know, guided by their team principal, depending on how much money you have, you can go pretty far. And, and I think that's been one of the criticisms about Lewis Hamilton is, you know, he used to drive for McLaren 
in formula three. And then he moved his way up to Mercedes and um, you know, since his formula one debut in 2007, I mean, he's gone on a tear uh, you know, he, he came out and he set rookie wins and he's been sitting on top of poles and, and there's a big correlation to how many poles, you know, pole positions that you sit in and, and how you can finish the race. Um, and I'm just, I'm not here for it. There's so much of this. Oh, well, he, you know, he's in a better car. Like, no, the guy's an aggressive driver. Um, and you know, when you have someone with that much pedigree that does it year in and year out, you can point to the car and you can say, well, if he had to go sit in another car, yeah, it was, you know, like the Haas F1 team or rocket Williams or Ferrari Scuderia, like would he have done just as well? And I think the answer is yes. And Lewis Hamilton really has now come into the American consciousness this year and just his activism for uh, the murder of Breonna Taylor. Um, there wasn't actually a policy that said that F the F1 drivers couldn't wear t-shirts on the podium. And what he did was he, he wore a, a Taylor t-shirt. Um, he also put a black lives matter emblem on his helmet. And of course, if you know anything about formula one, I mean, the camera is always on their helmet when, when they're on board the car anyways. So you're, it was just constant messaging. And he even talked about, you know, as a young uh, man growing up in England, you know, what his experience with racism is. And, you know, he owns property here in America. He's obviously a big, big sports influencer. So he felt he needed to use his voice. And I think we saw a lot of that in the sports world here over the, you know, the last arguably 10 to 24 months. So it's not surprising that um, some of the hatred that's like popping up online is mostly because people are like, you're an athlete, please keep your mouth shut. Like, you know, like we, we tune in to, to see you racing around the world. We're not really here for whatever your social justice causes are. But when you look at a guy like Lewis Hamilton, um, he's a guy who obviously has control of his own agenda and his own spotlight. And um, he, he's doing what he needs to do with it. He's doing what he believes he should be doing with it. Uh, so I'm never going to fault someone for having an opinion and for using their platform for the biggest. You, you know that, again, we've seen this in the NFL. We've seen all these other sports leagues that when it's convenient for them to, you know, get some good press off of it, that, that they're going to do it. They're going to, you know, have talking points. And that's, that is what it is um, for Lewis Hamilton to come out as an individual, you know, putting, I guess you could say his toes in the line and saying, I'm not afraid to lose sponsors or whatever, because I look what I've already done in formula one. I know this is what needs to be said for the betterment of mankind. Um, you you got to give him props for that. So with that being said, there's just a couple like lingering criticisms that, I mean, I'm seeing on a ton of these message boards and I'm, I'm just over it. So look, the first argument, Hamilton drives for Mercedes. They arguably have bottomless pockets and they can afford to put limitless money into the car and engine development. And is that a founded criticism? Maybe, maybe not. Formula One, up until the end of this season, had no spending cap on what the teams could put in. So, for example, when a team gets the car ready to go and they trailer it up, they have spare pieces because, you know, things happen during races and you have to be able to take those parts off the car and get them to keep going. If a company like Mercedes has more parts on hand because they can spend more, is that going to give them some assistance in a race? Well, yes, because if their car is on the track and it's still going and making laps and, and sitting in poles and winning races versus a car that crashes, spins out, the engine dies, tires overheat, whatever have you. Um, yes, of course, that'd be an advantage. But th this is, I think, where this argument begins to fall apart. Some of the top 
teams in Formula One right now, obviously are, are Mercedes, but there's Ferrari, there's Renault, and there's Red Bull Racing. So Red Bull Racing actually has two teams. They have the Red Bull Racing flagship team and then Alpha Terai, which is sort of their, hey, welcome to the big leagues, but you're like a, I would say you're going to get to drive in Formula One, but it's almost like AAA or, or AA ball. You get to hang with the big kids, uh, but there's really no expectation. Mercedes has two cars. Lewis Hamilton pilots one of them. Red Bull ostensibly has four. And if you're going to tell me that, oh, well, look at them. Look how much money they have to pour into the car and the engine. Well, there's another team that has four cars that are out there running every single race. So they have the fiscal capability to do that. Now, Renault, they have an engine and they have an F1 car. And they're, they're backed by a publicly traded company. So where this really just kind of falls apart for me is the folks that say, well, Ferrari doesn't really have a shot. Red Bull doesn't really have a shot. Renault doesn't have a shot. How is that possible? Ferrari is worth $30 billion. And they have just as much money to put into their cars as Mercedes does. And Mercedes is worth $21.35 billion. The only person who could make an argument whatsoever to say that maybe there's too much money that goes into the car is Renault. That's because Renault is worth $5.8 billion and outside of France. I mean, who really drives a lot of Renault cars? We don't, we don't have a lot of them here. So, yeah, I want to say I believe you on that. But if your main competitor that you're trying to keep off the podium has two other cars than you, then fiscal improprieties don't really stand there. Now, this has been something that you know people have complained about for a long time. And, and the Formula One board has finally said after this season that there will be monetary limits to what teams can spend. That being said, uh, Hamilton is seven. I don't think it's going to necessarily stop him from going on and continue to trounce and, and go win races next season just because Mercedes can't drop, you know, two, 300 million into a car. Um, no one really complains in NASCAR about how much it costs to field a driving team. They just get all the sponsors together. And it's the same thing in Formula One. So if you're worried about what teams are being able to outspend you, I mean, there's a simple answer for that, I think. And it's, it's not pointing the finger and complaining. Another criticism. Oh, Hamilton hasn't really been challenged. He sits on the pole position most races. So as soon as he gets through turn one or, you know, a couple of chicanes, he's, he's pretty much gone. And see my point earlier, he has a faster car, so no one can really keep up with him. All right. Here's what I have to say about that. In racing, the person with the fastest lap gets the pole position. And the second fastest gets two, three, four, five, so on and so forth. That's the same thing that happens in all the time trials in every single organized sport and non-voter sport, okay? Here's a stat that doesn't matter. Out of 1,032 completed Grand Prix, as of this, this past uh, month's 2020 Turkish Grand Prix, the driver that qualified in pole position has gone on to win the race 433 times. So if I'm looking at a pole position... And you're telling me that, that out of 1,000, less than 50%, we'll say 43%, because that's what it is, roughly, 43% of the time, if you sit in the pole, you're going to win. You know what that means? That means that there's almost a 60% chance that if I'm sitting in second all the way to 16 or 30 on the grid, that I have a shot at doing it. That is, that is the truth. Like the, the numbers may be more skewed in recent years because of Hamilton's dominance, but it doesn't absolve the fact that... Just because you sit in the pole doesn't mean you're going to win the race. 
you have to box at the right time. Make sure that your, your pit stops are good. You have to make sure you don't spin out. What if you crashed and you, you don't get a do not finish for that race? Like all kinds of things can happen. But again, I think a lot of this heat is coming from the fact that Lewis Hamilton, for example, holds the second most records for pole positions. He's qualified first on 97 occasions. Now, Michael Schumacher only had 68. So if we're going by stats that don't matter, and if you want to talk about who's the GOAT, if, if you want to use polls as an indicator for success, I'm sorry, Hamilton is far and beyond. He's a third more almost ahead of what Schumacher is, who is a great racer. And I think it just goes back to maybe a fear of people not wanting their favorite racers or favorite athletes to be replaced with someone that they don't fully agree with or identify with. Because if you take a look at all of the other stats that he has, okay, Hamilton is completed in 264 races. That's how many starts he has. And he has the most wins over that time, 94. Most pole positions at 97, which we already discussed. Podiums at 163. Points, career points, and points in a season. So where does your argument fall apart? It should be any one of those, those subsequent subcategories that I gave you there. Think about this. 264 career starts, almost a third of those are wins, 35.6%. And of the seven world championships that Hamilton has captured, he went on a, a, a rather prolific run from 2014 until this year. Okay, he won in 14, 15, 17, 18, 19, and 20. And in fact, the only year he didn't win, 2016. So the guy stays on the podium no matter if he gets a pole or not. Um, I mean, he's been in Formula One for like 13 years, okay? And he's won seven. He's like the Brady, the Tom Brady of Formula One. So people can say that he's not the best because he doesn't have the most hardware, but he does. It's just, it just doesn't make sense to me. I think at the end of the day, like, and I'm going to continue to make this point, when you see athletes that have minds of their own, personalities, that are just as cunning at the plate, behind the wheel, on the court, as they are in their own personal lives, when they understand and realize the influence that they have off of the court, off of the track, that makes the world better. That makes sports better. But it's not quantifiable, and you can't control the money that's made off of it. So maybe there's an undercurrent of people who think, you know, I'm really not a big fan of this. But I'll just wrap this up and, and say that, Formula One is a sport that is steeped in history. And right now, history is being made. And it's not only unfair, it's a detriment to the sport if we don't recognize what's going on as outright dominance and for what it is, which is incredible, incredible racing. Now, we're going to have to see what happens next year. Obviously, the fiscal cap on how much teams can spend on their cars is going to have some sort of difference. I mean, there are teams like the Haas F1 team, which is owned by an American. You know, he's putting almost half a billion dollars of his own money into trying to run that team. There, there just aren't a ton of people across the world that have that, that ability. So you need to fundraise. And every time you go out there on the track and you wreck a car, yeah, it's going to hit you a lot harder than it will for companies who have disposable income. But I don't think it's similarly just putting a money gap in place is going to, I don't think it's going to even things to the point where the competition is really going to, you know, take over. Lewis Hamilton started on this last Grand Prix in the rain 
from the sixth position. He did exactly what he needed to do to last and finish the race, and he had to beat a teammate. He's had to face other drivers who have won world championships, and he's had people on his team that have the pedigree to challenge him. You can't say, even as a casual fan of Formula One, that what he's doing right now isn't dominant and isn't deserving of, of calling him the, probably the greatest of all time in Formula One. I understand what Schumacher did. I understand what Ernie did for the sport when it first you know, struck into international minds. That doesn't take away from what this young man is doing right now, which is since the beginning of the 2000s and right before the 2010s, this guy has been absolutely handing everyone their tail. He's super aggressive when he drives, which is what people want when it's an athlete that they love to identify with or can control the media about. And this is a guy who might go into video games, might go into off-road racing, might leave the sport behind. And the sport realizes that, uh, oh man, we might have a very, very, very big vacuum of space to fill if this guy just up and leaves. But to be honest, the guy that has made as much in his career as, as Hamilton has and is all the hardware probably doesn't need to continue to be in it. So he's doing it because he loves to. So is that really the person you want to alienate? This guy's going to retire someday. And unless other teams really kind of start figuring out how to win constructor championships, he's going to set a mark that may never be touched. You need to appreciate that rather than complain about it. What do you think it's going to take to grow? Would you watch Formula One if it was broadcasted more in the U.S.? Or like if they held Formula One races here in the U.S.? They, they do. do. They have I a do. U.S. Grand Prix every year. No, I know they have it's in Austin. Like one, but like if, say, it tried to compete with NASCAR and they had routine races here, would you tune in? No. I, I think I, I trust more about the product that NASCAR is putting out. Um, and if you, to me, like the counter argument to that is, well, if, if you love NASCAR, you must also love funny car. You must love drag racing. You must love stock car, touring car. Um, I could be a fan of formula one and not right. have my DVR record the 24 hour of Le Mans. Um, what I've seen currently, I, I feel more comfortable with the fact that there's an American former NASCAR, um, you know, donor in Gene Haas, who has the Haas F1 team, that, that guy's going out there and he's trying to punch way above his weight class. And I think he understands it, but he tries to get as much out of the car and out of the driver as possible. He knows he's up against some fundraising limits because he's going against an entire car corporation that could probably throw more money than, than whatnot. Right. I know that there's a Formula One contingency here in the United States, and I just, I just can't get behind it yet. It's, it's sort of like when you see Major League Soccer yep. and then you watch like Premier League. It's the same sport, but there is a vastly different product that you see. And after you've seen what the, the top halls of the level that they can play to are, yep. you can identify with a team. You can love what you see, but you would, you would know, for example, like there are, there are Premier League players who go to retire and they just play the MLS. Yeah. And they run circles so, around MLS players. So that Because Rudy, we haven't grown the game here. So with Rooney, Zlatan, like his first game, Zlatan literally punted one in from like <laughs> halfway down the field. Yeah. 
for me, it's yeah. like I'm, I'm not taking away anything from racers because I understand, you know, as much grief as they may get about, oh, just oh, left turn. Oh, yep, left turn, left turn, left. I know it's very difficult to do that, but I actually, I'm not a big race fan in general. It doesn't matter what the race is. I actually grew up in an area of California that had a track that was geared more towards that style of street racing, less the turn track racing, and then I moved into high school to an, an area that... Um, if you're from New England, Oxford Plain Speedway is like a staple amongst the NASCAR yep. path. Like almost everybody who has raced at a professional level at one point races there at, I don't even know what it was called now. It used to be like the True Value 250. And it, it, it's changed over the years. But for me, racing has never one of the, been those big staples. I saw motorcycle races at that track. It was called Willow Springs in Rosamond, California. Um, very cool spot. I know it's actually showed up in a couple of video games lately, um, which is kind of cool to see. But for me, uh, I prefer Formula One just because I know the level of the cars, how much control it takes to you know keep those cars on the ground because all of them want to fly away pretty much. But still, even with my level of appreciation for Formula One, I think the 24-hour race is the only one I would actually tune into. Um, there is a uh, there is an, another racer who's very interesting. There's a couple documentaries you can find on him. Uh, his name is Jan Mardenborough. He was a former video gamer uh, in, I think it was Gran Turismo, who played a bunch of online tournaments, got invited to come out to this, I think they called it like GT Academy or something like that, where he got to compete and play and then eventually learn how to drive cars. He's actually become a very successful racer. So if you're looking for... You know, a storyline to follow. I know everyone's probably heard of the name Hamilton. Uh, not the Broadway musical, but the racer. Um, everyone's probably... I've heard of him. I've read lots. I've watched some of his races. Um, but if you're looking for a storyline to kind of bridge you into some of that GT-style racing, some of the, you know, supercar racing, um, find the documentary. Unfortunately, he, he was struck by a little tragedy um, shortly after he became a professional, showed a lot of talent. And I'm getting in a car accident and it killed a fan. So, um, you know, it is it is a pretty interesting story to follow. Uh, but anybody who's looking to, to jump from NASCAR over or someone who's looking to just sort of get a window in, inside. Some, I know Hamilton has a ton. You already mentioned uh, the series that you're watching. There's a bunch out there. If I'm going to sit down and watch a race, I prefer Formula One over NASCAR myself personally. But... That being said, uh, I'm probably taking a nap if if, if NASCAR's on, or if racing's on television, <laughs> just in general. <laughs> when I started watching that uh, Formula One Drive to Survive series, and and what it, what they do is they they follow uh, one of the drivers from each team, and they they have these you know it's it's almost like a hard knock style. They have like you know the team principals um, and the owners and and the, the drivers and. The, the lead mechanics and everything. And it's such a, an amazing operation to watch um, because it's, it's really like everything is, is optimal. It's optimized for maximum performance. And anytime there's a mistake, everyone freaks out. And it's just like, they're trying to get as much as they can out of the human and the car. And it's just fascinating to see it. Um, so they have like little clips every week of where they are in the races uh, in the world. Um, and <laughs> I just remember the first time I saw an episode, I was like, the American Grand Prix in Austin. I was like, wait, hold on. But there's a there's a Formula One event here in the United States? What one, why have I not known about this? And two, how do I get tickets to go to this? And of course 2020. So hopefully sometime in the future you get a chance to see that. Yeah. But enough of me yakking. 
Sure, I put most of the listeners to sleep here. <laughs> so, Tim, what yeah. did happen with the Masters was John Rom did not win. No, John Rom did not win. And neither did no. Tiger. So yeah, if you if you listen to episode 30, yeah, we weren't uh we weren't we weren't on our game, as they say. They were they were a lot like our uh NFL picks, if you will. Um although we did say Dustin had a chance if he came out and he played well, and that's pretty much exactly what he did. Uh they got a little weather help as well, which for a guy like Dustin, um for most most golfers it adds length to the course when it rains what we mean by that is when the if you if you're not a golfer uh or if you are a golfer and you just haven't played enough to really know when it rains the ground is a little damper and it tends to bite on the ball a little bit so the ball doesn't have as much roll doesn't have as much carry after the fact so when we talk about weather in tournaments and we talk about rain it means the course is damp the ball's not going to hit the ground and continue rolling nearly as much. Now, a player like uh, Dustin Johnson, who has a long ball, uh, and most of his length comes off of the ball flight, so literally the time in the air, it's going to help because you don't really rely quite as much on the spin of the ball afterwards. It also helps him with some of his uh, some of his approach shots. But, man, that man coming off of a layoff, a self-imposed layoff where he just didn't play much, and then COVID, um, He's only played in three events this season as a as a whole, but he's still the world number one, so you always have to be on the lookout for that. But he won his second major, and he won his first green jacket. Not only did that, he won by five, and he did it with the lowest 72-hole score in history. Uh, previously, it was held by Woods and uh, Spieth, and he beat that by two shots. So hell of an outing for him um the interesting thing about dj and why he gets so much press coverage is because he's just a really relatable guy he's a little different than a lot of the golfers who are on tour today um he's super laid back all the time most things don't seem like they bother him whether he's playing well or not there's not a lot of visual indicators there as to what his current mindset is and it's a little bit refreshing uh, he does say that he does get worked up like everybody else, but he's not going to show it to you. There's lots of interviews where you'll see him in front of the press corps. They're asking him and pushing him for questions just to try and get some form of feedback or clickbait or something like that. And every time he gives these perfectly even, often funny answers. Um, and I think it just sort of brings him down to earth. And when you kind of forget how great of a golfer he actually is, there's actually a, uh, a series on YouTube um, by TaylorMade where they bring in a lot of guys uh, like Jason Day, Dustin Johnson, Tiger Woods, McElroy, uh, and they put them out on the course and they're all, you know, exchanging ideas. They're going through these little challenges. It's, it's a, it's a cool little event. Um, and it's just a cool little thing to see. And oftentimes Tiger will be up there giving day like, okay, how do you hit the ball? Well, well I, I keep my hands back and, I lean forward, and as I come to the ball, I roll my hands over, and then you'll see someone like Dustin, and it's like, well, you guys think of all that before you even hit the ball? He's like, I just get up there and, and hit it. Rom's kind of the same way, but um, it is funny to see, you know, Dustin has come out and said, I don't play slowly. Like, you are going to hit your shot, and or you're not going to hit your shot. Why bother wasting too much time thinking about it? Just get up, and you're either going to do it, or you're, you're not going to do it. So, um it's really kind of brought him down to, you know, the normal playing level 
It's just he happens to be uh, an animal when he gets out there. Some of the things that the rain allowed him to do on top of driving the ball is he doesn't usually put a lot of spin on the ball either. Uh, his ball doesn't have a lot of action after it lands. And courses like Augusta tend to bury the pin either in the back or like in harder to reach parts of the green where a lot of players just naturally have a lot of spin on the ball um, or just normal natural ball striking at that level put some action on the ball. He doesn't have a lot of that. So areas where normally if you put it too close to the pin, you'll see in a lot of these major events, they'll hit it you know, 10 to 15 yards away from the pin. And while you're thinking, oh, well, you missed it, that's actually a great shot because if you put it too close to the pin with some of that backspin or forward spin, it's going to roll right off the lip of the green or it's going to find itself in a position it's really hard to, to putt from. But on days like... Sort of like Tiger found out? Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll dive into that a little bit. Oh, uh, man. Man, that was a meltdown. We've seen quite a few of those tin cup style meltdowns over the years. Tiger just happens to be the latest and it kind of hurts a little bit because obviously you know Tiger, but Jordan did the same thing not too long ago. Both of them were the 72-hole leader just going into this tournament uh, all time. So it goes to show that it can kind of happen to anyone. What I think was a little bit more impressive for Tiger is, you know, he kind of grinded through a lot of it. There was a lot of weird playing time for Tiger with the stop and start and stop and start where he ended up playing like a round and a half in a single day. And, I mean, Tiger's an old man. I mean, he's legitimately... Uh, an elder statesman in the golf world now with a fused back. So anytime you're going to go out and play more than 18, I mean, 18 holes is a lot to ask in general, but anytime you go out and play more than that, especially with a guy who has as big of a routine as he does, like on game on, you know, days where he plays, he's up at like four in the morning out getting himself ready, going through his routines and getting out on the practice greens. So, um, it's going to weigh a lot on a guy like that. He did come out and shoot, I think it was like six birdies in his last eight holes. So kind of shows he's a little bit resilient. You wonder what happens, you know, going forward. Obviously, you know, he wasn't there on Sunday, but he had moments where he did look pretty good. Um, that 12th hole where he put up 10 points, like me and my buddies stopped counting at eight when, uh, when we're out playing, which I think is a lot of, a lot of groups hole limits if they're, if they're coming up with one. It brought him from three under to um, eventually when he came back. I think he he ended back. What did he end up back at? I think he ended up back at two under. So take away the the ten strokes he put up. I think he went from three three under to like four over, and then he fought his way back. Um, if he had not had that epic collapse and he continued to make those same birdies. You know, it would put him still out of contention, but closer to like, you know, the middle of the leader pack where you take the 20, the minus 20 that Dustin put up, five behind that was uh, second place. And very quickly, Tiger is, you know, tied for fifth, sixth, seventh. So ultimately, all of this is just a, a stellar outing that we haven't seen before. A um, couple other takeaways. Roy looked strong. He was flirting with uh, winning on Sunday as well. His opening round, 75, was a little bit tough to come back from. Um, he ultimately ended up tied for fifth, 14 under. So to go out, put up a high number, and then still come back and fight your way into contention. Um, 
it kind of goes to show more the quality of gameplay from Dustin over the weekend and the scores that were being put up across the board. The two guys who were in second place uh, were equally as impressive. Um, just ask Karen Smith. Uh, sorry, ask Cameron Smith how good Dustin Johnson was because he's the first golfer in PGA history to put up four rounds in the 60s, and he still came up short. I mean, he's only had two tour victories before this, so coming into this one, he was a little bit of a, you know, he had been on some radars, but not like a front runner by any means. Um, Vegas didn't have him anywhere near the winning, but came out, did incredibly well. I think you're going to start seeing him pop back up into the conversation, especially, you know, five months from now when the Masters come back in April in their normal slot. That's actually the, the best part about all this talking about the masters we're going to get the same thing five months from now when it's normal time slot uh but m was another one who he also tied for a second uh he's one of those guys that was known for just grinding out seasons he would put up you know 30 plus events per year dialed the back a little bit focused a little bit more on some of his uh ball striking some of his uh approaches just slowing down a little bit and focusing a little bit more on some of the major events that he would be part of instead of just getting out for reps. And he did incredibly well. He's 22 years old to tie second, to come into second place for uh, an event like this speaks a lot for what his skill set is. You're going to see him uh, more and more as this goes on. I did say last week, though, that Bryson was going to be one of those that was going to polarize the world and was going to do one of two things. Who's either going to completely destroy the course, and then we have a conversation as to what this means for golf going forward, uh, or he was going to suffer from inaccuracies and he wasn't even going to be part of the conversation. Now, I wouldn't say he wasn't completely part of the conversation, but I think he tied for like, all right, I think he was in like 36th or something like that. He came into the tournament saying that he was, that this course plays more like a par 67 or a par 65 or, or something crazy like that. Wasn't even close to any of that. It, it Augusta is one of those courses where length helps. Obviously, it helped Dustin Johnson, but that was both length, weather factoring in. Not completely. You can't. I don't want to say that weather is the excuse and and why he won, but it definitely plays into some of the success that he did have. It played completely into his strengths. With Bryce, with Bryson, uh, he did complain about some some stomach issues. He complained about some dizziness. Uh, he had a COVID test that came back negative, so that wasn't it. Uh, I wonder if anybody's looked up maybe the potential side effects of some uh, some HDH to see <laughs> what could be going on there. Because that man put on forty pounds in the off season. Um, but I think Augusta goes to 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 show that while distance is great, accuracy is still going to be king. In the old adage that uh, you drive for show and putt for dough is truer nowhere else other than Augusta in how accurate you have to be. Like there are such difficult holes that literally lean into water. And if you are not doing what, you know, you're setting out to do and you miss even by a little bit, Tiger said he was misplaying just the wind. And that's what caused him to put up, you know, a 10 spot on the, the 12th hole when he sort of had his little collapse, but you can hit the ball a mile but if you're not hitting your approach shots or some of those mile-long shots are off the fairway, 
Augusta is one of those. There's lots of trees. Everybody can go back and look at, you know, some of the compilations between the best shots at the, at the Masters, and you'll see guys like Tiger, guys like Bubba Watson, guys like Phil pulling all these crazy trick shots trying to get around these trees. But for every one of those, there's probably 100 shots where you just had nothing and you had to sort of pitch out or, or, or play it safe. So um, golf and Augusta remain safe for another season. Dustin was kind of on that line between hitting the ball a little too far. Both of his Eagles came on a par five second hole that he made look incredibly easy. Um, so there's still some of the distance conversation that's still going on there. Um, the other notable takeaway, Jordan, Jordan made the cut. I know a lot of people going into this were, you know, is he going to make the cut? Is he not? Historically, he struggled a little bit, but he landed on the line. Uh, and he just, He'd never quit, even though he was completely out of contention. He never quit. He strung a bunch of birdies together uh, on the front nine of Sunday when he was no longer even part of it. So it, it was good to see that in, that he's still grinding it out. He finished in the top 50, which I think for him, the guy trying to revamp his game, what he's doing on the course, I think this speaks a lot for what we can hope to see going forward. Hopefully he can take this piggyback off of it and, and kind of find a way to use that as motivation. But I think with guys like one of the other things we had said was that I said, it would be nice to see some change up. It would be nice to see some, some mixing of guys on the leaderboard because we see the same guys all the time. We see the Kepkas, we see the days, we see the DJs, all of those guys. And we got just that. We had both uh, Smith and M in the last day, in the featured rounds, going into to Sunday and almost winning. Uh, I think golf needs a little bit more of that. Uh, the name recognition is great for people who are casual spectators. It's great for people to associate with Tiger Woods. Um, Dustin Johnson, while he's a great player, unless you're a golf fan, I don't think you necessarily associate yourself or find a likeness to, to Dustin Johnson. He's just sort of this aloof, sort of dopey, guy when he gets out there he just plays incredibly incredibly well so it's hard to kind of connect with someone like that versus jordan spieth he's the hometown southern hero you have tiger woods obviously everybody knows who tiger woods is brooks kepka the heartthrob turned vegan or or something like that everyone kind of he has an appeal like a visual appeal that a lot of people watch for but um dustin johnson's one of those guys you know for a long time it was Helena gretzky's husband and like that's what he was, even though he's you know flirted with the top the top spot in golf for a very long time, and he's won a ton of events. He was still kind of like a meh. And there will be people outside the golf world going into next week who will no longer tell you who Dustin Johnson is once the media stops talking about him winning the Masters, just because he's not. He doesn't have that 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 name recognition. So start throwing in some guys like. Uh, 22-year-old Im, right? Korean player, having a lot of success. Like, that's a cool little story. You have Smith. He's 27. He's been in the, the tour for quite a while. Hasn't won much. Now he's flirting with one of the best tournaments uh, in the season. I think it'd be cool. We are due for sort of a changeover. There's always a changing of the guard. Like, Finau was sort of the, the start of that. Kepka was the start of that and taking over the mantle from guys like Phil and Tiger. And I think we're due for another little wave of that. We're going to start seeing some 20, 22-year-old, 23-year-olds come in. 
and start shaking things up a little bit. So I thought it was great. Um, there was a lot of golf on Sunday. It'd be nice if they found a way to kind of condense that down, but I get it. Weather can't do much about it, but overall, I thought it was a great tournament. I thought they did things incredibly well, given the circumstances. I think not having fans there helped guys like Dustin because you don't have the constant, uh, I don't even, I don't even know if those guys feel pressure the same way anymore, but you don't have that constant like feel of having to perform for somebody. You just go out and you play around the golf. Pay attention to the, sto- the scoreboard. I know if you're leading the Masters on Sunday, there's going to be stress that's following you around the course. He led after, I, th- I think it was like 53, 54 holes he had to lead. So he wasn't stress-free, but I imagine that probably helped him a little bit, especially when you're kind of that laid back, I think. So all in all, hell of a weekend. Uh, shout out to, to DJ. Hell of a round. One of the best ones, obviously, we've seen ever. Now, I think whether Tiger's age, mm-hmm. splitting the round, all of those things helped. But Amen Corner kept its kept its namesake. It did exactly what it needed to do, which was thin and call the herd. Uh, there was just <laughs> a lot of folks that really, really got exactly what they had coming to them right there. And, you know, for a course like Augusta, even though the, the location of the cup will change, like for the most part, you know what you're getting yourself into. And... Uh, it's been obvious this year that, if anything, golf's popularity needed to to sort of be sustained. It, it was one of those sports that is perfectly socially distanced, and if you had the money to be able to go out and enjoy it, you know, you could have grown the game a little bit. Um, we didn't have a lot of content, and then this game, and now you're saying we're having Augusta again within five months. So for those guys that came in second, that tied for second, or even within the top ten, you're just sort of thinking, okay, took some licks. I know exactly what I need to do. Oh, and by the way, I get a chance to go back and hack at it again in the same sort of media cycle in like in one year's time, I get to go back and sort of rewrite the own narrative. So that that is pretty good. But Tim, talk to me about this. There's a match 3.0. It's got Steph Curry and Peyton Manning and and uh, Charles Oakley. Like what what is going Charles on Barkley? with this? Yeah, I. Uh... Oh, yeah, Barkley. I said Oakley. You did. This is fine. It's fine. Um. Not a huge fan of the pairings, actually. I, it, it depends on how we want to look at it, right? Like, so anybody who doesn't know, Charles Barkley is a terrible, terrible golfer. Stop what you're doing right now. Pause <laughs> us. Terrible. T R B L. Terrible. Stop what you're doing right now. Watch us. Go or pause us. Immediately go right now to YouTube and look up the swing. It's not good. It's not good. He looks like someone who has never swung a golf club before trying to swing a golf club. And he does it. He does it every single time he takes a swing. He's got this weird little hitch where he like comes up for a second and he waits. And it's just the whole thing is just incredibly uncomfortable to watch. So for me, this is more he was part of the coverage last year. And I think this is just nothing else but to try and get some people to uh, tune in to see how bad it is. But what I liked about the previous ones was the first one was Tiger versus Phil. That's huge. Uh, this one's going to be Phil versus who? Like, I don't think there's another golfer on the roster. No, I don't think there is either. I mean, yeah. I, I gotta be honest. I put it in here in the notes because I, I just saw it while scrolling the Twitter sphere and I was like, this is a joke. Well, why is Steph Curry and, and Charles Barkley doing this? And I was like, what, Phil's in it? 
I was like, what is going on here? Like, look, yeah. it was cool when we were in the middle of a the the what are we gonna do part of quarantine, but now I'm just like, listen, Linda, listen, you're gonna give me the content, it needs to be hidden, as yeah, the kids would say. Exactly. Like this one just seems like nothing more than like a view it's it's like an exhibition just like it's gonna be Phil beating up on everybody. Right. Like I know Curry's a decent golfer. Um Oh, Peyton is also in it. So it's Phil. Oh, yeah. It's Phil, Peyton, Curry, Barkley, I think is the matchup. Um, But it just seems weird to me. Like, what what I liked before is that you had Tiger versus Phil, which is cool. And then you had Tom Brady versus Peyton. Also a cool little combo. I don't know why they didn't go with, like, uh, a competitor to Curry, who also happens to be a good golfer. I know there's, there's quite a few golfers out there. Or, like, another... Another famous athlete who is good at golf. Uh, was it Fitzgerald or Hopkins? Even Fitzgerald. There's one of them last year when they have the uh, uh, the closest to the pin contest. There's several golfers who were out there, but I mean, uh, several football players who are out there. Pick one of those guys. It just seems it's weird. It's lost a little bit of its luster for me. I thought as great of an idea as Tiger Phil was, it was a missed opportunity with what it could have been. Still. Still fun to watch. Um, I thought Brady Payton, Tom, and Phil was another good matchup. I would have watched that again. Like just run that one back. This yeah. one is just a little bit yeah, more. Run of it back. A, yeah, this one's just a little bit more of a of a miss for me. Eli is gonna be part of the broadcast. Like the whole thing just seems like somewhat ill conceived and they just threw out, hey, who wants to come do this? And they just picked a couple random folks. But Yeah, like Charles, and you know, we Charles, talked about this before. Yeah, Charles is going to be Charles. Yeah, Charles, he's, he's a Wait, terrible I think... golfer. So you're just going to see really bad golf mixed with some decent golf and then Phil. Like, that's what it's going to work out to be. Yeah, if I wanted to, if I wanted to pay to watch a scramble, I go to, I go to the course on yeah. a turkey trot or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? I wouldn't, I wouldn't really turn into Turner Broadcasting and watch it as it goes. I mean, we talked about this uh, at, the, at the end of the last match. Um, you know, I thought you, you needed to get some women celebrity golfers that are famous up there and some yep. LPGA blood in as well, or maybe even like some, some amateur phenoms that you, know, you, you want to give some screen time to like it's free chicken at this point. Like you're going to yep. get the good advertising. You're going to get to see what they can do on a course. Maybe you throw some prize money in there and yep. you know, you, you know, PJ matches it and goes to charity. Like it's a missed opportunity here just for likes, shares and subscribes, which I won't, <laughs> I won't totally trash cause we need some of those too. So, you know, like, they share, did, subscribe to Sassamatter Podcast. Anyways, <laughs> they did stop short of just throwing out, like, <laughs> total eye candy, which I can appreciate. You didn't throw out, like, uh, you know, there's plenty of golfers out there who are there just for social. I mean, they're they're probably phenomenal golfers. Don't get me wrong. They would beat me all day, every day. But a lot of them have started to pivot their careers into social media influencers. Like, uh I, I won't throw any names under the bus, but I'm, what I'm glad to see is they didn't go that route and just go for sheer Instagram or social media popularity. They are trying to make this a little bit more accessible. Like, sure, can I relate to Charles Barkley and his terrible swing? Yeah. Do I want to watch him go out and compete against three other guys who are somewhat decent or one guy who's a superstar? No, no, probably not. So I get what they're doing. I'm just not particularly a huge fan of it. So I'm out in the pay-per-view round this year. Oh, it's too bad. I was going to be in, but then you're out, so I'm out. Psych. I was never going to be in. <laughs> All right. Um, 
look, one of the last things we got to get to here before I kind of give something, uh, we, we saved the, the meatiest, I think, story for last. Uh, I'll do a quick hit here. There's a lot of Celtics draft grades that are shooting around the internet. Um, don't care about any of them because I see some that give them the Celtics a D plus, and I see some that give them an A minus. Uh, there needs to be a consensus. Obviously, the Celtics did what they thought they needed to do with the picks they had. The only thing we're really paying attention to right now, and this could change before this episode goes live, is Gordon Hayward decided he's going to opt out. He was like $34.1 million. Now nah, I'm good. Yeah. Okay, cool. This, this Stevens uh, Hayward experiment was cool. You came in and when you weren't injured, you led the team to some good stuff. I have no idea what is going on with this franchise. Yep. Every time they try to bring in a big name, uh, instead of letting the names on the team grow and become those marquee players, there's always been a yep. chemistry issue. I can't say it's Danny Ainge. I can't say that it's it's uh, Stevens because he, he gets the guys to score points and they still win a lot of games. They still go to the postseason. What I will say is the Warriors just traded for Ubre after the the Pelicans or, or the Rockets or whoever it was to give up like the farm for him. Like there have been so many wild trades this, this past week. And then Hayward just, eh, I'm going to opt out. Like, oh, okay, cool. Wait, yeah. wait for you to wait to the end of it. Like there's just, there's not a lot that's like going on right now. So I can't, um, I can't say and the season is going to start on the 23rd. I can't say I necessarily blame Hayward either because they didn't come to an agreement, and then they decided he agreed mm. to let the Celtics push the timeline until after the draft. That's literally you saying, like, hey, look, man, we want to go and shop around and see what we got. I don't know if we're going to have time to do it before the end of today. So if you could, just let us – let's see what happens after the draft. We're going to get a whole new round of things to look at, and then we'll come back and, and, and discuss this. So I don't necessarily blame him. What I don't know is – and, and I'll, I'll have to admit ignorance here. What I don't know is how much of the input he had in delaying things. Like if he said, Hey, look, I well, he could have, he could have, yeah, he could have opted in for that, yeah, for he, that one year, but it's like it's $34.1 million that he's just like, nah, I'm good. I mean, good for you. I hope that your, that your bank is in a position where, where you can do that, but yeah. contracts can be moved. Al Horford's contract was moved and he, the, the 76ers owe that dude 60 some odd million dollars and they got yeah. another team to pay for it. So, like, you're always going to find willing suitors, you know? So, like, it, it didn't make sense to me that you just kick the can down the road until after the draft, like, and Gordon's okay with it. Like, to me, that says there's something else that's, like, going on that we don't know yeah, about. Yeah, I have a feeling, like, they couldn't come to a common ground. Um, but I think the moment the Celtics were like, hey, can we push this till after the draft, as a player, you're like, are you are you kidding me? Like, what? They right. wanted what they wanted to do is they wanted to use him as either trade bait during the draft as they saw things sort of shake out where they could offload him and grab a couple picks. Um, but I think there's a level of maybe disrespect that he felt there. But I've said before, and I think the NBA is kind of in a weird spot where I've said before I think I like the Celtics better when we don't have a lot of marquee players. When we're looking internally, we're building off of what we have in place. I think they tend to mesh better and find some success. The problem now is guys like Tatum are starting to become these superstar players. Like I just saw uh, someone went through and rated all of the players in the league, and you had superstars, which was like eight players, and then right below that, that tier was called like all-stars, and he was part of that. So like there are guys on the Celtics team who fit into some of that superstar of the top-tier categories. Um, but in general, I like the homegrown feel. I like when we're, we're scrappy, but... 
it's really, really tough to do that when everybody around you is starting to force these super teams. Like, the Nets, man, they're when everybody's healthy and they come back, they're going to be a team that's going to be really tough to, to go up against. You have Duran Irving, uh, plus the moves they just made. They're literally forming their own super teams. So you have those guys, and you have the Lakers, and everybody is just trying to put it together, Hayward being on the move. Like, it's just... I think it's going to become really difficult to try and compete with a lot of those teams if you are homegrown talent. I, the days where you had one or two stars on a team and the rest was the supporting cast, I miss those days of basketball because what you're getting now, baseball is starting to get the same thing where all the stars migrate towards one team because everybody's chasing a championship because that's the benchmark we've now given as the, the measure of success, right? Blame Tom Brady for that or blame you know, old school Lakers, but blame, there's lots of areas or teams in sports you can look at to, to post that blame up, but where we're looking at championships as the measure of greatness and success, everybody just wants to go and get them because history books down the road, you know, are only going to be read by purists and people like us with too much time on their hands. It's not going to be regular Joe Schmo that takes a quick glance to say like, oh, Kyrie Irving had three championships that clearly puts him in the conversation with some... Oh, but what you did notice is that Durant and four other guys all migrated to that team to win, or like a LeBron James who goes and now he's won another championship. Well, he was on a team with Anthony Davis, so now you have like it's it's just strange that basketball is no longer uh, just a, a complete skill sport. Now it's a a legitimate money sport, and the gap- it's an arms race. Yeah, yeah. And, the, and the gap between the people who don't have money to spend and the teams that do is getting further and further and further apart. And you're, what you're going to end up seeing is like two or three teams every single year who are just going to start tanking to hopefully get some first-round pick or get a first-round pick so they can start trading up for some of the you know all-star players and some of these superstar players that are out there. It's Basketball is in a weird spot. I think Hayward in this transition is just sort of the – the most recent example of that, he's probably going to go to another team that's going to be in contention for uh, a championship. Was he bad when he was with us? No, I actually really liked him. Um, I why they're getting rid of him? That I it just may he may have been looking for more of a contract, and Celtics were willing to extend before the draft. And then the moment they said, "Hey, let's push it after the draft," he was probably like, "All right, you know, give the give the two fist bump from friends. I'm out of here." <laughs> well, you know, it, it's good with all these moves around that there, there's such a nice infusion of young talent that's coming into the league. Um, obviously, if you've been by TV, you know now that LaMelo Ball is going to play for the Charlotte Hornets. So two things. LaVar, you talked a lot of trash about beating Michael one-on-one. Now we got to see it. And <laughs> the second thing is that no other like set of brothers – that in, in, I would say the last like 15 to 20 years has both gone in the top five. So we have to take a holistic look. LeVar Ball said, look at me, look at me, look at my boys, look at what they're capable of. All of them are going to play in the NBA. All of them are going to be great. And we're all like, LeVar, shut up. We don't want to watch your Facebook show. We don't care about your kids going to play in Lithuania. But apparently there was enough drive to necessitate those things. And then look, Lonzo went to the Lakers didn't do a lot, had some injury issues. He's now getting to play with Zion in New Orleans. 
Um, LiAngelo played internationally after the whole scuff up in college. Now he's on a G League team. He could get called back up. And LaMelo, top five pick, goes to a franchise that obviously needs an infusion of young talent and, and to sort of turn some things around here. You can't deny that there is basketball pedigree there. I wonder if most of the the heat that people reserve for LeVar was, you know, was it showmanship? Like, is he actually like that in real life? Or did he just do it because he wanted to get as many cameras and as many people to pay attention to his sons as possible? Um, I mean, the dude is not like going to ever be known as a great coach or a, an athletic trainer. You know what I mean? He probably outsourced those things, but you cannot deny that um, let's say three, four years from now, when all of his sons are playing at some point in the league, like that's incredible. You, you got to give some credit to where it's due that to say, look, we're going to put all of your life's goals on hold and it's going to be all about the NBA. And, that, and that's where we're going. You can say whatever you want about the shoe deals and, you know, him turning down companies and trying to go about it as himself and the way that he did it and stay in your lane and branding. Like it was bizarre. I, I feel like it was not like uh, it didn't appear to be super genuine. And then you, you just look at, and I, I won't get into someone else's family politics, but you just look at the stuff that their family's been through and you're just kind of saying, what's the priority? Is it basketball or is it family? And there have just been a ton of weird things in like the last three years that have happened in the world anyways, that LeVar Ball probably made enough waves to sort of, you know, tell us about something that was going to happen anyways. There are people who, who go to play for Division One programs they are going to make it to the league. Um, for LaMelo to make it to the league without playing in the NCAA farm system, that is an anomaly. That is not necessarily an indictment against how things will happen in the future, but I do think you have to look at it and just say, okay, well, if someone can go and play in Lithuania and Australia and put up some good tape and, and be – sort of crowned as look this guy has enormous talent he has vision but what what can we do with him well the answer is not draft him in the top five <laughs> yeah. so if he's been drafted in the top five that means the scouts obviously saw something that they believe was going to be there so i don't think the ncaa has to worry a ton but i do think that we can give mr ball ball in the family and all of all of them that entire outfit we can give them credit for striking out against the big shoe companies, the big media companies, and arguably the biggest corporation uh, in sports, the NCAA. And they, I mean, they all look like lowercase W's. <laughs> like, I don't want to give them a big, big fat Jameis Winston. Uh, that's a W. I'm eating a W. But <laughs> ah, oh, real quick. He, uh, oh, he, we'll get into this in a second. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but like LeVar, LeVar swung for the fences on all three. Yeah. And he got all three. It, you know what I mean? So like, I, I don't want to, I don't want to dig into it too much. We're going to see what happens obviously with the, yeah. with the ball brothers, these, these next couple of years, but uh, begrudgingly, you can't, you can't talk about the way that someone approaches some things and then not give them a little credit for how about an unfortunate nickname? making it happen. How unfortunate is that combo? Which one? The ball, the ball brothers. Okay. I can already <laughs> picture the bar stool t-shirts. If they both turn out to be bad, just, you know, well, and and Lavar would would sue for copyright infringement, probably. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> speaking of, uh, real quick, Jameis Winston W's and eating the W. How's getting benched before you even get your first start in Seattle Sound? Because uh, 
Well, he is not getting New the Orleans, start this yeah. weekend. I mean, in New Orleans, he's not getting the start this weekend. Yeah, wah, I went wah, to the uh, I went to the waiver wire to go pick him up off the uh, off the free agent list, and then yep. uh, you know it was yeah, released yeah, today yeah, that obviously yeah. Taysom Hill is going to be the starter, which makes sense. You pay the guy twenty one million dollars, of course he's going to be your starting quarterback. Because if he's not, why did you pay him that money? Yeah. But uh, it is it is yeah. just a little funny. Alrighty, to see here. a guy come out and throw himself uh, out in front of the camera to boast and brag, and then not even get your first opportunity to start. So. Here's wow, the thing, wow. though, if if Hill struggles, Winston is gonna is gonna go in because Winston has played the Falcons for many seasons, so he knows what to what to expect against them. Sure. Now you hope well, that Taysom has taken enough practice reps also. and we're gonna see something good because he threw the other team the ball, but he scored a lot of touchdowns on that team too. You think he's not gonna throw? If, All right. If Winston comes, if Winston comes in, he's throwing uh he's throwing at least two picks. Yeah, but it'll probably throw four touchdowns. It's the Atlanta Falcons. Yeah, that's true. This is true. I'll give you that. We, we, we'll have to see what happens. All right, here. The last thing we're going to talk about in this episode, and we've probably pontificated for many more minutes than even we did. Jesus, these burps. <clears throat> we've pontificated for many more minutes than we have even on the NFL recap. It's a momentous week for the Major mm. League Baseball Association. Okay? Kim Ang becomes the first female general manager in history. She's also the first Asian American uh, GM. There has been so much progress um, in baseball, even though like you have like Tony LaRusso came back and this is a guy that is very anti black lives matter and likes to say all the conservative buzzwords and doesn't really totally appreciate the players. Major league baseball has taken such a step forward in the last year. Yeah. The minor league took some hits. Yeah. The playoffs were expanded. Yeah, the storylines weren't what we thought, and then COVID ravaged the league. But for a woman who has the pedigree that Kim does to get to the highest position, well, I mean, one of the highest positions, obviously, I think, I mean, she worked in the league's front office for eight years, so she could run the league, you know, at some point in the future. This was one of those steps that uh, a lot of people thought that was a glass ceiling, and she didn't just, like, break the glass ceiling. She shattered it. She disintegrated. She, I mean, go to Rogers the source and just find another another you know synonym for this word because what she has managed to do mm-hmm. is be a beacon for all women who actually want to elevate to the highest levels of the sport. She was a softball player. She came in and she was working her way up. Yep. No matter how many times she interviewed for jobs, and there were plenty of jobs that she tried to interview for. Uh, for general manager spots that she never got. And then you watch all these guys get hired because they've either been there longer or it's a good old boy system, whatever it is that, that you have. And I mean, at one point she was one of only three women in the entire major league baseball that had sort of uh, like I, I, what I would call a value position as an assistant GM. Mm-hmm. She got a chance to go to not one, but two of baseball's storied franchises. She was with the Yankees and she was an assistant GM when they won not one, not two, but three World Series. There is no reason why she should have sat in Major League Baseball's office for eight years. She should have been a GM way before now. So you can tell me, oh, this is great. We, we got her here. Cool. We got her here. But you let that woman work in the league office when we could have been changing the game Yep. as it needs to be. And 
nothing, 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 but the best wishes for Kim going forward because she's a fantastic, brilliant baseball mind. She's someone who every time when the door was closed in her face, she took nothing but grace and aplomb and was like, I'm going to go open the next door. I'm going to go open the next door. I'm going to grow the game. I'm going to grow this franchise. I'm going to grow that franchise. You think the Dodgers, if they had a shot at actually trying to bring her in, they, they might've wanted to do that before now. Who knows how many more series they could have won. You can't tell me that, oh, she's a woman. She doesn't understand baseball. How is that possible? If the Yankees were like, cool, come be the number two for us. And they were that way for one of their dynastic runs. There's no reason that every other team in baseball should not have given her a spot in Seattle. San Diego, Los Angeles, when they were the Anaheim Angels, and San Francisco, you all had a crack at getting her to be your GM at some point throughout the last two decades, and you didn't do a damn thing. You hired other people from in-house or people that you believe are going to help your franchises, and you have nothing to show for it now. Hmm. You don't. Your, your ceiling could have been so much more higher. Like, baseball is a sport that might be played by men. But that doesn't mean that it has to be governed by men. There are people who understand and love the sport and will be huge fans of it and grow it no matter what their orientation is. So in the most 2020 thing ever, we had a a World Series that came up. They had a ton of firepower. They won it. And now as we're getting into the winding months of 2020, we finally get a woman general manager. And I, I don't think then it's any different than what we're seeing as far as what else is going on in America with political means, with S and P 500 companies that are now having, you know, woman leadership, like that glass ceiling is being broken all over the place. Mm -hmm. I'm happy as hell that it happened in baseball. And I'm glad that she's going to go and do fantastic things in Miami because the guy that probably advocated for her the most, a rod got a firsthand look of what leadership she had on a triple world series winning team. That is the most 2020 thing you take a long time, but you finally get to the chef's kiss of it and you say, all right, this is your job now. And I, for one, am super excited to see what's going to happen in the future. Agreed. And before anyone goes off and says, well, she's never played. How would she be able to, no softball is as close to baseball as you can get. When you look at coaches in, let's take football, for example, how many of those head coaches or other position coaches never stepped foot on the field in anything other than some type of coaching position? You got to get out of here. They're all glorified fans, just like the rest of us. They found ways to make a career out of it, teaching other people how to play based off of what they observed. There is no reason a woman couldn't do the same thing. The only trade-off is that she has played. She grew up playing softball. I think it's great to show that there are avenues for college softball players because right now it's just sort of a not necessarily a dead end, but there is a hard stop. Once your college softball career ends, there isn't a lot, there isn't a path to really look at. But this kind of, this should help maybe open the eyes of a lot of female softball players who are going through college wondering, like, what am I doing this for? What's at the end of this? What? You know, being a college athlete is very, very difficult. And if you're there on a scholarship, a lot of times you're held to the same standards as every other scholarship that's on there, whether it's men or female players, you are still working out all the time. Your life is around that sport. So now that you see that there is potential end game, there is things that can be done after the sport is over, uh, I think it's fantastic. I think, like all things, 
once you've seen one, it opens the doors for others, and you'll start hearing maybe about more positions that have opened. I think that's also going to be key. Uh, and this is actually one thing that I like that the MLB did that I think is kind of getting lost a little bit on what the NBA is trying to do. Or, sorry, not the NBA, but what the NFL is trying to do. This kind of came quietly out of nowhere, and they just said, look, here you go. This this person has this job, the first female, first Asian American, versus when you tend to try and, like, not necessarily publicize it, but when you turn it into something, right? We just had the uh, collective bargaining agreement for the NFL talk about providing uh, benefits for teams that develop uh, black coaches within their within their uh, organizations. I think the initiative is great, but what it ends up doing is I think it, we talked about this once before, runs the risk of cheapening the experience for that coach who's coming up. Are they going to be grateful for the opportunity? Are they going to look for those opportunities? Of course, and they very well should, but you shouldn't have to reward teams. You then start to have to look and say, okay, did I get this because the color of my skin? Is, is there a benefit that goes along with this that the team's more looking out for? Or are they truly in it for me and my ability? And there is none of that conversation when it comes to her being hired because it wasn't talked about. There was no benefit that was tacked onto it. They just said, this person fits this role. Let's give them an opportunity. There needs to be more of that in other sports. They should be able to look at coaches, regardless of race, and say, you fit this particular spot. We want you here regardless. It shouldn't have to be promoted. It shouldn't have to be, or well, not not promoted. It shouldn't have to be rewarded because it shouldn't need to be something that is considered something that's not valuable on its own right. Now you have that little added extra that I think is going to make, like, if I'm going up against the job, with somebody else and that person by them being hired benefits the company they're obviously likely going to get that job i feel like that person is then going to feel uh like they got shortchanged a little bit they start to wonder okay did i get this position because i deserve this position or did i get it because of my color of my gender of my background whatever the case may be nfl can learn a lot from what the mlb just did Give everyone applying a chance, regardless of, like, go strictly off of their resume, what they've done, what they've shown, what their history is. Stop stop focusing on rewarding teams for color. Stop worrying about things like that. Just put the best possible person in the position to win, regardless of where they came from or what the background is or what their race is. I think MLB hopefully sets the standard. Other leagues are going to look at this and say, okay, well, shit, that was pretty brave. I mean, you're going to have those guys. I already see them on social media. You guys have already seen them on social media. The guys are going to poo-poo all over it because they poo-poo all over everything because it seems like social justice warrior movements or whatnot. No, this is the best candidate getting a position. This should be the case for everyone, and I hope I hope all the, te- all the different leagues in all of sports take a look at this and say, okay, we should be doing this more. This is being met with open arms. Hopefully, we can kind of do the same thing. Think of it like this. Uh, Katie Sowers was an offensive assistant for the San Francisco 49ers, but she still is, right? She was she was the offensive assistant last season when they went, what, 13-3 and, and ran a mock 
all over the league and went to the Super Bowl. They win that game. It, I mean, granted, they went against Patrick Mahomes, so you get what you give. But like, let's say they win the Super Bowl last year. Yep. That would have been a massive glass ceiling for her to just catapult through yep. and not even be worse from the wear from it. Like, there are women side judges. There will be women referees. There need to be women commissioners. There, like this, why in the world in 2020 is the United States who claims it's the world leader why are we so far behind? Why are we lagging on these things? Oh, it's social justice. No, it's not. Like you said, it's it's the right person for the for the job right now. It shouldn't. It what shouldn't, do you have to lose? Nothing. Yeah. It shouldn't require some sort of reward or incentive to do it. Just effing do it, man. Just do it. Get beyond yep. it. Let's do it. Fantastic. All right. Well, that is episode thirty-two. 32 of the stats to winner podcast. We thank you all very much for listening. Um, you will hear us again as we recap uh, this past week of the NFL games. And I'll give you a little spoiler. Tim's going to go first and he's going to have to take a big fat L. It's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I already accept. Hashtag uh, let Russ cook. <clears throat> I know Russ, Russ, Russ closed up the soup kitchen. So it'll be back. Yeah. <laughs> It will, it will not. It will not. Not, not in that manner. All right. Uh, of course, everyone knows you can get Stats of Matter wherever you find your podcast. Please tell all your friends about us. If you like what you're hearing, go ahead and hit us on the social. Say, this is great. I love this segment. If you think the segments are trash, let us know. We want to give you all the best product that we possibly can. Uh, if you're a brewery and you want us to review your beers, please reach out on, on the socials. We will happily uh, review your beers. Yep. Let us know which ones we should find, which ones we should try. Uh, you know, if you guys want to come on and talk a little bit here, we're here for that too. So, cheers, everybody. Yes, go out, yes, indeed. Find, go out, find yourself Biff and Bev. Buy it all up, as many cans as you see. So, cheers, folks, and have a great weekend. Cheers. <laughs>